since I've been your pastor, as long as I've been here, I have sensed and felt the need to preach to the church collectively. I preach through our beliefs. I preach through how we should live by the great commandment, love one another. Love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and neighbors yourself. I preached about the Great Commission. I preached about how we should do things that we pray that leads to worship and we worship that leads to evangelism and evangelism to discipleship and on and on. Most recently, I have preached about being a Jesus church. It's been to the church collectively and all along the way, my goal has been to call us to make sure of our salvation. To make sure of our salvation. I would hate to know anyone under the sound of my voice when it gets to judgment day will hear depart from me. I never knew you. I've always tried to call us into ministry to find our place and, and, and minister. I spoke to individuals like that, but I've cho- spoken to the church collectively today and for this message. I kind of make a change. This is going to be more personal and in your face than anything I've done. And I know that because it's been personal and in my face as I have struggled this week. I'm going to begin with this statement on the screen. In our day, people that you and me will spend most of our most of their heart, their energy, their time, and their resources to make their dreams come true. And it could be the worst thing anyone could do. Now, some of you are saying, Preacher, why in the world would you say something like that? Well, don't feel bad. When I heard this statement 10 years ago by my friend Ed Litton, same thing. I thought exactly the same thing. But I'm going to push it a little further today. For God to give us our dreams might well be a disaster. Why? Well, there's a lot of reasons, but I will tell you this. Those who are come on Wednesday night, y'all remember Wednesday night? That's prayer meeting. 6.30 on Wednesday night, we gather and we pray. I don't want you to forget it. One of the parts is we're doing a Bible study. And I had to go back to this message on Thursday after I'd done all that work because in Jude, where we've been studying, it speaks to us. I'm a, you don't turn here quite yet because you'll be playing Bible drills. But in Jude, go ahead there. In Jude, verse 8, it says this. In the same way, these people, now the people Jude's talking about happens to be those who have, have 
come in by stealth. But he says in the same way, these people, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and slander the glorious one. Now, if that doesn't catch mine and your attention about our dreams, Romans 1 should. Romans 1, Paul is writing to the church at Rome, and in verse 21 he says, For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude or give thanks. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling now, this is interesting. Mortal man, bird, four-footed animals, and reptiles. If I was preaching this, I could take you through a 100-year look about how each one of those falls in its place. Then to continue, it said, Therefore, God delivered them over, in my translations, many translations say God gave them over, gave them up, in the darkness, excuse me, in the desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity, so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. Now, here's the payoff verse. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served what had been created instead of the Creator, who is praised forever. Amen. Now, did you catch that? The very reason that our desires can can become such a disastrous thing is that we tend, we human beings tend to make idols of our dreams and desires. Tony Evans says, that we can make an idol of any noun that is a person, place, thing, thought, or desire. The scripture says they knew God. I mean, they knew him. They knew who he was, but they didn't honor him or, or respect or worship him or recognize him as God. But rather, they honored, they worshiped, they served those things which were, had been created instead of the one who created him. You know what that reminds me of? We'll put it on the screen. It's a scripture Jesus used when he quoted Isaiah. He says, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. John Calvin said, the human heart is an idol factory. If he is right, and I suspect that he is, we can make an idol of anything. Now, I want to say that again. We can make an idol of anything. A child, a mate, a job, a family, a church. We can make an idol of anything. And I submit to you that our our world, our land... And even us, we are filled with things that we love 
more than we love God. And by definition, when we love something more than we love God, it is an idol. Our propensity to possess idols and false gods finds its beginning. Are you ready? You want to know where it began? It began in the mind of Jehovah God. When the folks came out of Egypt, God took Moses up on the mountain. And when he took him up on the mountain, he gave him this warning in the beginning of the Ten Commandments. He said, then God spoke all of these words. This is Exodus 21 through 6. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Do not have any other gods besides me. I know King James said performance, same thought. Beside me, do not make an idol for yourself, whether it is whether in the shape of anything in the heaven above or on the earth below or in the water under the earth. Do not bow and worship to them and do not serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the father's iniquities to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. And that sounds like a big warning, but the warning doesn't stop there. You can turn, you can look over in Ezekiel chapter 14 verse 3. It says this, Son of man, these men have set up idols in their heart and have put their sinful stumbling blocks in front of themselves. Should I actually let them inquire of me? Well, Brother Jerry, all those are Old Testaments. Okay, let's go to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, Paul writes, For no one recognizes this. Every sexually immoral or impure or greedy person who is an, who is an, read that with me, idolater, does not have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. And then John himself writes in 1 John, he says, Little children, guard yourselves. Or keep yourselves from idols. Back to Tony Evans. He tells us that the number one sin dealt with in Scripture, from Genesis to Revelations, from the title page to the map, is idolatry. And out of idolatry, every other sin comes. The first commandment of Scripture, I've told you this many times, the first commandment of Scripture, the first commandment, is the most broken commandment in America today. If you will, take your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. Now I'm going to get to this story in a second, but I'm going to let you turn there so you feel comfortable that Brother Jerry is going to get to the Scripture and the passage and the story in a second. I want to offer us three powerful words Today, three powerful words. There's really four, but I'm not going to have time. I just know that I'm not going to have time to do that. So we're going to, we're going to have three powerful words, and then I'm going to call you to respond. I want to make no bones about it. I'm going to call you to respond. And you will respond. You'll either ignore it and blow it off and say, well, I need to get on to Sunday school. You'll either ignore it and say, no. Or you'll respond to the wooing of our Heavenly Father. 
The first word that I want to give you is simply the word showing. And what I'd like to do is I'd like to take a few minutes and I would like to show, reveal, expose, maybe even uncover truths about idols or false gods. I want them to burn in our heart. You can look on the screen. I'm going to give you a little thought here. We think about idolatry. We think about all of these things. We certainly remember the golden calf. We think of idolatry. We think of the, the bust, the wooden bust there. We think of the, of the uh, uh, statue. In fact, when we think of idols, we think over in the primitives in the bush of Africa, we think of the flaming gods where, they, where everybody's bowed down. We think of all of those things. And we think when we think of idols, we think of something intrinsically bad. Yet... Many things which are idols today, which are false gods today, in this room, started out as something good. It could have been a blessing from God, and I've already named some of them, child, mate, family, job, house, car, career, tradition, good health, church. God gave it to you as a blessing. And you have made it into the ultimate thing. An idol is anything that you love more than you love God. Matt, do I need to say that again? An idol is anything in your life that you love more than God. And it may be different for Jason than it is Sherman. It may be different for Dwayne than it is Steve. It's anything in our life that's replaced God. You've taken a good thing and you've turned it into everything. On the screen is the, is the definition of good thing which you have made into the ultimate thing. So it becomes a bad thing. But Jerry, I don't think I have... Idols, how would I know? Well, let me just give you five thoughts up here, five questions you can ask yourself. Think about your daydreams. What is it when your mind goes to rest? What is it that you hover on? What is it that you meditate on? What controls your thinking? Think about your daydreams. Think about your next, the uncontrollable emotions. What is it that lights your fire and gets you mad? Why is it that it gets you mad? Why is it that it sets you off? Think about your money. How do you view my money? How do I view my money? How how do I spend my money? Why do I call it my money? Because it's mine, right? I want you to also, number four, think about your nightmares. What are those things that scare you, frighten you? And finally, I would just suggest that you could think about your unanswered prayers. Brother Jerry, how does unanswered prayers reveal a God in my life? Are you listening? You pray for God to do something. And he doesn't do it like you want him to. So you kind of throw him under the bus. Oh, you may not stop attending church. You may not stop going to Sunday school, but 
I can't count on God anymore. So here's the question. Here's the question. Who is the God in your life? The one you appealed to or what you appealed for? If you're willing to toss God under the bus. Don't be too proud to admit it, brothers and sisters. There is something in me and there is something in you that can make a God of anything. And too often we do. I hope that you're catching this, the royal laws. The royal law. Love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor yourself. I'm hoping you're catching this where Jesus taught, seek first the kingdom of God. You see, our God desires. Our God demands our love. If we're going to be his, we have to be in love with him. The church at Ephesus, Revelation chapter 2 They were doing monster good things. They were doing many good things, mucho good things, multiple good things. And still to them, he said, oh, that's well and good, but I've still got something against you. You've left your first love. You've lost your first love. You've changed your first love. You've abandoned your first love, the love you had at first. Brothers and sisters, hear your pastor today. Misplaced love causes deep spiritual And emotional problems. So I ask you right now, who or what do you love most in your life? This is one of the reasons that people might say, if I lose him or if I lose her, I just don't think I can go on. You see, folks, when you lose something you love... You deal with it, you grieve, and you move on. But when you lose your God, grief will be insurmountable. Well, I just love my baby too much. I just love my family too much. I just love my husband too much. No, that's not it, folks. God wants you to love your baby. He wants you to love your family. The issue is that you don't love them too much. It's a matter that we don't love him Enough. When our love for things and people on on earth exceed our love for God, it shows in all kind of ways. You know, the truth is, we'll forsake the getting together, the assembling of ourselves for just any reason when we have another God besides Him. Now, last word about this ultimate love, giving Him ultimate love love is that you should the Bible's clear that we should love him the most but if you put your ultimate love on a person please listen if you catch nothing else carry this with you if you put your ultimate love on a person over time that love that kind of love will crush them and crush the relationship because no human being can stand up to the ultimate Only God can stand up to the ultimate. Abraham was the father of our faith. I already mentioned about how we got to Jude 8. 
on Wednesday night for our study and how God seemed to be orchestrating this message. I'm reading through Hebrews. This morning, my reading was Hebrews 11, Faith Hall of Fame. Hebrews 11 mentions Abraham multiple times. But here's a story. Back in Genesis 12, God came to Abraham, as you know, and called him out of home, called him away from home out of the Ur of Chaldees. Didn't tell him where to go. He just told him he wanted him to go. And if he would go and obey, God would make him the father of many nations and give him many lands. Well, Abraham, knew, uh, and he was Abram at that time, knew the many lands. But the problem was Abraham was 70 and Sarah was 60 and they didn't have any kids. How in the world was God going to fulfill that promise? But you know what Abraham did? He believed God. The Bible tells that many times. He believed God. He believed God was above his uh, his handicap. He heard God say, he heard God say, I'm going to give you, I'm going to make your offspring as fast as the sands of the sea. And he had no son. Now we can go through all the things that happened there. You know all of that. But finally, they got a son. Finally, Isaac was here, the child of promise, the one who we love. Isaac means joy. Can you imagine living your whole life wanting a baby, not having a baby, and then in your senior adult years through a miracle of God, you have a baby. The joy that came through that house. Isaac was a child of joy, produced joy. And you would think, man, now that Abraham and Sarah have left their home, didn't know where they were going, they've obeyed God, God has blessed them with the kids, you think, that's pretty well over now, right? Well, then God introduced what we know as a test. We know as a test. Abraham didn't know that. So now we're in chapter 22. Now we're in chapter 22. Look at those first two verses Of Genesis chapter 22. After these things, God tested Abraham. I bet Abraham would have liked to know that this was a test, but he didn't. And he said to him, Abraham, here am I answered. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Is anybody's mouth dropped open? Anybody's mouth dropped open? You catch that? God told Abraham to take the promised son and offer him as a burnt offering on Mount Moriah. Why would he do that? What was God thinking? Why would God tell anyone to do something like that? You know that I've just told you Isaac means joy. And some of us know that Sarah laughed when they got told they were going to have a baby. But the laugh was on her because they actually did have a baby. And now the joy flooded the house. Why would God tell them to take this boy and sacrifice him? Which brings us to our second word. Second word is sacrifice. God has spoken to Abraham. Now Abraham, have I lost you? Now, Abraham has two choices. He can protect the son of promise, protecting, quotation marks, 
or he can respond to the Lord of glory that gave him the son of promise. Please listen to me. That's the choice that we face every time God speaks to us. We can either try to protect what we have that's created on earth, or we can be obedient. I'm afraid in 21st century America that we've gotten too comfortable protecting our idol and ignoring the Lord. But scripture says Abraham believed God. So the next day, he saddled up. Let's read on. Genesis 22, we'll pick up verse 3. So Abraham got up early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took him. And took with him two of his young men and his son Isaac. He split wood for a burnt offering and set out to the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and he saw the place in the distance. That would be Mount Moriah. Then Abraham said to his young men, you stay here. The boy and I will go there to worship. Worship. Now what he didn't say is, we're going to go over there and we're going to hear a screaming praise team. We're going to go over there and we're going to hear some throw down preaching. He didn't say we're going to go over there and have some great music. He said, we're going to go and worship. Truth is, sacrifice, let me say it another way, worship has always been about sacrifice. It's about obedience. It's about sacrifice. He decided that he trusted God, so he got up the next morning, he loaded his donkey, he had the fire, he had the knife, he had the wood, he had the boy, and now he's left the servants behind And he's headed to Mount Moriah. By the way, he took the wood off the donkey and he put it on the back of the son, the sacrifice. Little symbolism here. It's kind of like when they put the cross member on the back of Jesus and he walked up Golgotha. Now this boy is walking. To Mount Moriah. Can you imagine Abraham? Can you imagine the treasury of every step, the hurt of every step, this boy who he loved, who had been promised with every step? I can I can hear him praying under his voice, Lord, not my boy, Lord, not this way. Lord, if this if you will, let this cup pass from us. You see, Abraham, Abraham was not deterred in his obedience. He was determined to be obedient. Because he knew if he put this son of promise above his love for God, that the whole house of cards will fall down. You see it. Abraham obeyed God even when he didn't understand God. People of the 21st century in America, it's time for us to obey God even when we don't understand what he's saying. 
and knew he had to obey. Probably didn't want to. Have you ever been in a place like that? Have you ever been in a place where God told you what to do? He told you what you needed to turn loose of. He told you what you needed to forsake. He told you that sin you needed to let go of. And you wouldn't because the truth be told, your love exceeded that sin, that God, over your love for God. If you're taking notes in your bulletin, you notice above the, I've turned this idolatry, but that's not the real title of the day. The line in your bulletin above idolatry is a place for you to put this title because this title is what needs to stay with you. We don't put it on the screen. What is your Isaac? What is it that you love more than life itself? What is it that will call you away from being an active member of God's family that we call New Hope? What is it that will cause you to forsake the assembling of yourselves together? What is it that will pull you away? What is it? What good thing has God given you that is now number one in your life? It's kind of like Moses at the burning bush. Moses had that rod at the burning bush. It was hurt, not hurting anybody. But boy, he loved that rod. He felt confident with that rod. And what did God tell him to do? He told him to throw it down and get the snake out of it. What is there today that is number one in your life? Think about this. You have to know that Abraham and Sarah loved Isaac more than life itself. But when they got to Mount Moriah, the scripture tells us that Abraham bound the boy and he put him on the altar And as he put him on the altar, he was probably struggling. And he was probably saying, don't do this, son. He was probably dying a thousand deaths with every action that he took. And then he took the knife in his hand. And I think we've gotten to the place where we feel like he took that knife in his hand. And he was waiting for the angel to come and stop him. Is somebody going to stop me before I do this? But he was serious about his obedience. He loved this boy. He loved this boy of promise. But he knew that he loved God more. <coughs> could it be that, that Isaac had become their God? Or could it be that Isaac was going to become their God? I want you to let all this sink in with you. What is it in our lives that we love more than him? Abraham, I dare say, felt like he was going to die. But in the process of feeling like he was going to die, he was going to die to self. And through that process, God was going to save him, which brings us to our third word, salvation. Salvation. I want you to, I want to be clear here because I think some of you, I think it's easy, not just some of you. It's easy to take and draw the wrong conclusion. Abraham was about to slay, to kill his son. You don't believe that? God did. 
Because the angel said, Abraham, Abraham. Kind of like that time you had to say, Cole, Cole. The time you had to say, Jerry, Jerry, Jim, Jim, parent calling somebody, stop at this point. And then God says, his angel says, now I know that you love me because you've not withheld your son from me. And it's only when we withhold nothing. It's only when we withhold nothing from God that we find true salvation. We won't worship him if we don't respect him and fear him and love him. We won't worship him when we have a person, a place, or a thing, or an idea that we love more than him. Salvation only comes through the sacrificing of our gods. Whatever our Isaac is, we got to lay it on the altar. We have to get rid of it. So I'm back to where I question I asked a while ago. What is your Isaac? What is it that you can't turn loose of? A harder way to ask this question is what is your idol? Brother Jerry, do we really have idols in America? <laughs> we have a TV show called American Idol. I just want to say this. He's calling you today to lay your Isaac down. And having heard this message, you're faced with two choices. You can either do it or you can ignore it. The, third, the fourth word's not up there, but I will tell you this. When you choose to lay your Isaac down and you choose to take your hands off of it, you choose to sacrifice it and find your salvation there, he will provide you a substitute. He will. Did you hear the words that we sang just before we stood to preach? That wasn't by accident. Put the words on the screen, if you will. Lord, I will bow down to you. To no other God but you alone. Lord, I will worship you. Nothing hands have made, not the created stuff, but you alone. I will lay down my idols. Will you do that? Thrones I have made and all that has taken my heart. Lord, I bow down to you. To no other God but you alone. We come every week. And you don't know how it encourages your pastor's hearts because we literally engage in hearing message after message. I see it when you take your pencils and you make notes. But I wonder today if you're ready to lay down your Isaac. If you are ready to put Jehovah in the center of your life, number one. If you're ready to let him control who you are, what you do, what you are. (sighs) 
We're going to we're going to have our time of decision just a little different today. And here's what I'm going to tell you. In my heart and mind, this is a test. God is the proctor. He's watching. He's waiting. Because he sees and he knows. What will you do with your Isaac today? Let's pray.